Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 24, 1 through 10. Please join me in reading the verses in bold. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell there within. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts, he is the King of glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, it was welcome week of our freshman year at Bethel College in St. Paul, Minnesota, 1996. It's a welcome week, a, uh, a short week before the college year begins, and it's packed with activities for the new freshmen. There's a big move-in celebration and orientations every day. There's mixers in the day and evening events. There's a get-to-know-you groups led by uh, upperclassmen and coordinating t-shirts and dormitory socials happening every night, all with 600 people that you've never met before in your life. It's an introvert's nightmare. Um, Welcome week, 1996. I'm a freshman at Bethel College. I'm standing at the cereal machine in the dining hall. In the, they call it the dining center. Uh, it's that machine. Maybe you've seen them where the, you can see the cereal in the, and you have to spin the thing uh, and the cereal comes out. Uh, so I'm there and uh, getting some cereal. This cute girl comes up to me, a cute girl that I've never met before, and she notices what I'm getting. And she says... Cinnamon Toast Crunch is my most favorite cereal in the whole world. To which I replied, mine too. Do you want to get married? <laughs> I said, we can build our whole relationship on the fact that we both love Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And she said, sure. My name is Olivia. <laughs> and I said, my name is Brad. And we both went our separate ways and probably didn't talk or bump into each other for another 10 or 11 months after that. But that is the story of the first time I met my wife. Prophetic, right? <laughs> well, you'd only recognize it as prophetic if you know the rest of the story, right? If you know that we did, in fact, meet again, and that she did, in fact, say yes the second time that I asked her to marry me, and, in fact, remind me of the first time that I had asked. 
And we served little, uh, little plastic cups of cinnamon toast crunch next to every plate at the wedding reception. But full disclosure, it was my pickup line at the time. <laughs> there were other girls. Oh, you too is your favorite band in the whole world? Mine too. Do you want to get married? <laughs> it wasn't until later that you can look back and realize that there was a purpose in the moment, right? That I fulfilled, flirt with cute girls at the cereal machine. And some sort of propheticness, right, that got fulfilled later on in a, in a moment that I didn't realize was coming. That's the way that a lot of prophecy works in the Bible as well. There's a particular historic moment that the, there's a situation that the scripture is written for and written into. And then there's a later realization, maybe when we start to read the New Testament and we look back and we see that the Holy Spirit was already talking about something greater than just the situation that was specifically being addressed. This is particularly true when you're reading parts of Scripture that uh, aren't labeled necessarily as prophecy, like Psalm 24. Psalm 24 uh, is... In the book of Psalms, it's a, it's a book of worship songs in the Bible, and yet uh, Psalm 24 is one of the psalms that throughout the history of the church, Christians have sung and recited and celebrated on Ascension Sunday, the day that we celebrate Christ, uh, his ascension after his resurrection into heaven. When you when you read Psalm 24 and think about the situation that it was written into, we, we believe it was, uh, it was like an entrance celebration. It was a song that was sung when the Ark of the Covenant in the Old Testament was being brought back into the camp and back into the tabernacle, returning from battle. The, the tradition was that the Ark would go out with the army of Israel and represent God's presence going before his people and his protection over them. And so Psalm 24 is like the soundtrack of scenes that you can read in 2 Samuel 6 or 1 Chronicles 13 when King David returns from battle and he's victorious from the chaos out there and he arrives back in Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant to worship God and to celebrate God's saving help and his protection of his people in the midst of battle. But as I said... That's not how the New Testament understands Psalm 24. It, uh, since New Testament times, the church has associated Psalm 24 not necessarily or, or explicitly with Israel's triumph in the Old Testament, but with Christ's triumph over death and his ascension into heaven. And so today, uh, we celebrate the ascension of Christ. Thursday, if you can believe this, was 40 days after Easter. And uh, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus appeared and lived with and taught and did life with his disciples for 40 days. And then he was taken up into heaven. And so this morning, I just want to take a, a closer look at Psalm 24 and ask it three questions. Um, who is the king of glory? Why did he return to heaven? And why does it matter for us? 
who is the king of glory? And get up and tell stories about uh, college days, but I can only tell stories about my college experience from my perspective, right? I can only tell you what it felt like to be, as I understand now, a too cocky kid who left home in Illinois to go to Minnesota and flirt with girls at cereal machines. I can't tell you uh, what it felt like for my parents to send off an 18-year-old and see them go and know what, what. I can't tell you what their experience was like saying goodbye to me, although as I'm writing the sermon this week, I'm like, oh my gosh, the time is fast approaching, right? What I can tell you is uh, that on nights that I would arrive home for a visit from college, late, for, late at night for a Thanksgiving or Christmas visit, driving through the night after final exams, I can tell you that my mother would be, quote, waiting up on the couch, which means sleeping on the couch and waiting for my arrival, anxiously awaiting my safe return so she could wake up and hug me and then go to bed. Maybe, maybe that's a glimpse into her perspective on my college experience. But what I love about Psalm 24 is that it celebrates Christ's ascension from the opposite perspective than we're used to. In the New Testament, we have several stories of Christ's ascension, both in Luke chapter 24 and in Acts chapter 1, and both of those are going away stories. We're told that Jesus parted from them and was taken up to heaven. But Psalm 24 is a coming home story. Uh, Psalm 24 is Jesus who was, we were told previously, made for a little while lower than the angels, returning to his heavenly throne. Psalm 24 celebrates Jesus' entrance into heaven, and into the royal throne room. It's a description of a king of glory coming back to his kingdom with the blood of the conflict of his conquering still on him. And it contains this interesting kind of dialogue. It sounds almost like the angels are calling for the opening of heaven's gate as the approaching returning warrior comes close. Lift up your heads, O you gates. Be lifted up, you ancient doors. The king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Who is the king of glory? Well, Verses 8 and 10 uh, ask that repetitively in Psalm 24, as if as the king is approaching the gates, we're looking for identity. Is it him? Is this the one? Why is it that Jesus qualifies as the king of glory? Why does he get this honor, not just to be raised from the dead, but that he'd be welcomed back into heaven and into the presence of a holy God? And that's what's described in verses 1 and 2, the, the presence of a holy God who created the earth and, the, and its fullness thereof, and that he brought creation out of the chaos of the ocean and the waters and set its foundations. This is the God into, whom's pre, in, into whose presence the conquering king comes. Ascending the hill of the Lord, standing in the holy place, that's what verse 3 describes, is actually it's like Old Testament speak for not just returning to Jerusalem, but 
entering into the tabernacle, going into the presence of a holy God. And uh, the tabernacle was designed from the beginning to represent God's holy presence amongst his people, which is why there were so many requirements about cleanliness and ritual and the things that you had to do to enter into the tabernacle because people were finite and fallen and broken and God is holy and perfect and good and awesome in power. How would you presume to go into his presence? If only there was one whose hands were clean, someone who was sinless, right? Someone uh, who had no record of evil deeds, and yet Psalm 24 goes beyond that. says not just no record of evil deeds, but indeed somebody with a pure heart, a life lived without even corrupt motives or thoughts, never selfless, never even allowed someone to be misled or implied uh, something untrue with what they did. This is the description that verse 4 gives us of the qualifications of the one who could ascend the hill of the Lord. He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. You see, when we read the scriptures and we talk about Jesus's sinlessness, it's not just an exercise in uh, how awesome Jesus is, but uh, we make a connection there. We see that there's a reason that he was resurrected because the, the New Testament says that the wages of sin is death. And so for someone to not be held by death, it must be someone uh, who owes sin no wages, right? Who is without sin. Uh, but we're being told in Psalm 24 that it's also the reason for the ascension, for his triumphal return to God's presence. Because why is Jesus the king of glory? Because only he can do it. Jesus can abide in God's presence. He can receive blessing from the Lord. He's pure in heart. He's clean of hands. He's not false or deceitful in any way. This is the description that we have of Christ the only one, as we said some weeks ago, who fulfills the mandate of humanity, right? To worship God and steward creation, uh, to seek after his father in all times. This is the king of glory. Awesome. Why couldn't he stay? I mean, good to have around. Why did he have to go to heaven. Why did he return to heaven? Well, I think I was probably a typical college boy. Didn't do laundry very much. Didn't call home very much. My parents maybe wondered, what's going on up there six hours away in the Twin Cities? Is he doing, is he doing what we sent him there to do? Right? Is he studying? Is he learning anything? Is he growing up? He better be, because it sure would be cheaper to have him not learning and not growing up here, right? What did Jesus ascend to do? What's the mission? Why did he return to heaven after his resurrection? Why not stay? It shouldn't be lost on us that in the imagery of Psalm 24, uh, it, there's not, it shouldn't be lost on us that the imagery in Psalm 24 is not just of a returning king, but of that king returning 
to the tabernacle, to the presence of God. The book of Hebrews, which we read already from this morning uh, during our confession, talks extensively about how Jesus, in our ascended Jesus, is serving in the presence of God the way the priests served in the presence of God in the tabernacle. Hebrews 7, the, the passage that we read this morning, uh, particularly describes Jesus' role in the presence of God um, as the priest, as the mediator, as an intercessor, as the go-between between humanity and God, representing us in the presence of a holy God, representing the presence of a holy God in our midst. But as we read this morning, the Old Testament story of the priesthood was a story of an endless succession of priests. Not only were their sacrifices that they did in each worship service insufficient, they were uh, just a shadow of the sacrifice meant to point our eyes towards a once and for all sacrifice that would save humanity from our sin. But every one of those priests died. That's what Hebrews 7 says. Israel would have to start over every time a priest died. Every time uh, you lose a priest, you've got to get a new mediator. You've got to get a new intercessor. You've got to get a new sacrificer. Hebrews 24, uh, 7, 24 says that Christ's priesthood is permanent. Jesus lives forever. Jesus, our Lord, we're being told, intercedes for us. But he not only prays for us, and that's the description in the New Testament, but he knows us intimately. We've read Psalm 139 in this series. This is the one who formed us in our mother's womb and knew our inmost parts. He is the one who fearfully and wonderfully made us. And the description in Hebrew says that Jesus, our creator and redeemer, who has known us our whole life, stands and pleads for us in the presence of God. Preacher Charles Spurgeon wrote, Jesus reads my heart and has always read it since it began to beat. He knows my griefs and has carried my sorrows of old. The, the operative thing here for Christians is that we are told that we can approach the throne of grace with confidence because of Jesus, because we have an advocate there, because a human and flesh and blood like us stands worthy in the presence of God and pleads for us. We are in Christ by our faith in him, and so we can be in God's presence in a way that we don't deserve. What does he bring before the throne of grace? What is Jesus praying about? Well, he knows you. He knows your brokenness. He knows your needs. He knows your hopes. And that's what he brings before the God of the universe, along with the knowledge of what God's will is for you. We live on the going away side of the story. Jesus was lifted up and went away from us to heaven. The side of the story where we were parted from him. Uh, we, we don't get at this point in history and in eternity to live on the coming home side of the story where the ancient gates of heaven are awakened and uh, he returns. And so in some ways we're unable to 
imagine or really comprehend that reality, but Jesus is praying and interceding on behalf of his people. He lives even now not for himself, but for those who believe in him. That's why he rose for you and for me. In his commentary on Hebrews chapter 7, John Calvin writes, What sort of pledge and how great is this love towards us? Christ liveth for us, not for himself. For it belongs to a priest to intercede for the people. This guy understood the importance of the priesthood of Christ and the spiritual benefit of having Jesus in God's presence. Daily sustenance, remission of sin, protection of evil, that's what John says Jesus is praying for for you. Okay. How, what does that matter? That's theology, right? Not only theology, it feels high above, right? Pretty philosophical. Why does it matter for us? What can it do? Well, I said that I was a typical college boy, didn't call home until I needed something, or because I was halfway home and going to be there soon. Um, sometimes I would call home and say, can I come home tomorrow? On one such occasion, it's a six-hour drive. I called my parents the night before um, I was supposed to come home for a winter visit and asked if I could bring a friend. When mom said yes, I asked if it was okay if that friend was a girl. She said yes. This was the first that I had mentioned to my parents that I was seeing anyone, that, I, that there was a girl in St. Paul, Minnesota. I hadn't bothered to mention that I'd been dating at all, and this would be their first chance to meet their first and best daughter-in-law. I have some sisters-in-law that occasionally listen to the podcast, so I'll let you know if I hear from them. <laughs> I have often thought that Olivia is probably the greatest single benefit my parents have gotten from all the money they spent sending me to college in St. Paul, Minnesota. She certainly, most certainly, is the greatest gift that God gave me during my time there. What benefit is it to us today that Jesus isn't here, that he's there? Why is that good? Why is that his design? Well, it matters. I think it matters for our growth and it matters for our security. Let me explain. In his letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul gives believers Similar instructions to the instructions that Psalm 24 gives to the gates of heaven. Psalm 24 says, lift up your heads, O you gates. Gaze on the King of glory who is coming in. And Colossians, in Colossians, Paul says, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And then later he describes, he essentially uh, says the same thing in describing what he says we should set our eyes and our minds on. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, 
and love. When we ponder and yearn for these things, these spiritual values that are the, the characteristics of the one who has perfectly clean hands and a pure heart, when we fix our eyes on things that are above we actually stumble into one of the best ways to overcome the things that entangle us, sinful behaviors and indulgences, and indulgences that prevent the growth that we want to see in our hearts. The more time you spend, the more of your bandwidth and energy that you spend uh, pondering the incredible reality that Jesus, the Lord of the universe, stands and pleads for you in the presence of God, the more you will lose your desire to indulge yourself. Setting our minds on the things above renews our identity in Christ and lessens our desire for the things of earth. It's been personally a strangely difficult couple of days. On Friday, I learned through the internet uh, the news that Tim Keller had died. Tim, if you don't know, that name was a pastor of a church in New York City, author of several really important books, in my opinion. Uh, but I, I once upon a time had a uh, a friend who said you should have a mentor who you've never met, either because they've gone on or because uh, of the work and the reading that you do that they've produced. And I certainly would consider Tim Keller a mentor. Even though I, I never met him, his work was so influential in my life and ministry that I agreed with a text that I received uh, this week. Uh, a friend who's part of our founding group, our vision group for, for planting this church. And she said, I would consider Tim Keller to be a founding member of Grace Sacramento. Tim wrote uh, and spoke and we gathered around the work that he had done. We, we agreed together that while he's never been here, it felt like he was in the room when we were prayerfully considering what it means to try to plant a church and reach a city. Uh, Tim Keller wrote an article for The Atlantic two years ago after uh, he received a diagnosis of pancreatic cancer. The article was called Growing My Faith in the Face of Death. In it, he describes a process of marinating and meditating on the Psalms. I, I would recommend this article to you as a master class in uh, pulling the, pulling theology down into your life and into your heart. Uh, he talks about the pursuit of letting his intellectual confessions, those things that as a Presbyterian pastor he had taught and believed for many years, he, he talks about uh, the pursuit of letting those intellectual confessions of his faith, that Jesus lived, that Jesus died, that Jesus was resurrected, and that he ascended, um, to, to, let his, um, to let his imagination and the beauty of the art of the Psalms uh, capture his imagination and saturate his heart. He says, before cancer, the resurrection had been mostly a theoretical issue for me, but not now. He goes on to describe his own process of lifting up his head to where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
in an effort to not only believe that God is good, but Tim says, to taste his goodness. To not just believe that God is glorious and powerful, but to see it with the eyes of his heart. He says that by looking up to Jesus in this way in the midst of battling cancer, he says, speaking for himself and his wife, to our surprise and encouragement, Kathy and I have, dis have discovered that the less we attempt to make this world into heaven, the more we're able to enjoy it. There's no getting around a word like cancer. And so uh, it was the opportunity for him to say, is this thing that I've been confessing real enough to give me life and hope and joy? It matters for our growth that we make these things a reality, not just in our heads, but in our hearts. It matters for our security. Colossians 3.3 says, one more incredible thing about the reality of having a king of glory standing for us now in the presence of God. It says, to followers of Jesus, it says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. If our, if our lives as followers of Jesus are hidden in Christ and Jesus is already welcome in the presence of God, then as Calvin says, we're already out of danger. For what is to be more desired for us than this, that our life remain with the very fountain of life? I heard echoes of this deep kind of security in the communication from the Keller family this week announcing Tim's passing. This is the tweet. Tim Keller, husband, father, grandfather, mentor, friend, pastor, and scholar, died this morning at home. Dad waited until he was alone with mom. She kissed him on the forehead, and he breathed his last. We take comfort in some of his last words. There's no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. My friends, where will we find that kind of security? Where will we go for the, the equipment and the development that our character needs, the virtue that will be required to live as people of faith in a world where cancer and all else is real? This is our hope. This is our hope. 